Well, good morning, Grace Life. It's good to be here today, just a few days away from a, a new year, and a few days after Christmas, we're kind of in the in-between right now, and we just finished an Advent series through the month of December, and uh, this is the message that God put on my heart for today. I, I trust and pray and hope that it encourages you, and before we turn to the scripture, I just want to pause for a moment and just remember that we need God's help. We need God's help to see him more clearly, see ourselves more accurately, and ask for his grace and ask for his help. So let's do that now. Father, thank you for the, uh, not another opportunity to gather together in your name. Thank you for this building. Thank you for a heater that works. Thank you for your people uh, that are gathered together. Lord, many still at home, some traveling right now. We're grateful for who you brought and pray that you would encourage all of us would you open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see wonderful things from your law? We know they're there. We need your help, Lord, your spirit. Please send him. Please come, spirit, and open our eyes. Teach us, God, to, to see Christ more beautifully and more powerfully and in more compelling ways that help us to say no to the passing, fleeting pleasures of sin and yes to the glories of Christ that are offered to us in the gospel. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we turn to the scriptures, I want to actually introduce, introduce the message this way. When I completed seminary back in 2011, the church that I left that actually sent me and my family to seminary, they were gracious to me. They took pity on me. They felt sorry for me. And so they hired me back just down the road here in Ormond Beach. And I was thrilled. Now, keep in mind, um, seminary was hard for me. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I chose a seminary that would challenge me theologically, intellectually, um, and I didn't know it, but physically, seminary was exhausting for me. It took a toll on my mind and on my body. It was exhausting work, but by God's amazing grace and through the support of my amazing wife and my family, I graduated after five long, rigorous years of studying. And uh, I was ready to change the world. I was ordained in the gospel ministry. I received a Master of Divinity degree from an accredited, reputable school. My cannons were loaded, and I was ready to fire both barrels. Turn me loose, God. And he did. As an elementary PE teacher, a coach, a middle school logic teacher, and a church newsletter editor, and a Sunday school curriculum developer. That's what he sent me back here to do. And most of my days, honestly, looked really unremarkable, ordinary, lackluster. They looked about the same. I would start out really early in the morning teaching PE outside to uh, kindergarten through fifth and sixth grade. And the dew on the grass, my feet would be soaking wet by nine o'clock. Then the sun would come out by lunch and I would have a splitting headache and my ears and my neck would be sunburned. And then I would head back indoors uh, after, you know, ramen noodle lunch or whatever bologna sandwich I was able to afford at that time. And I would sit in a classroom and I would teach middle schoolers whose stomachs were filled with starch and carbohydrates who were falling asleep all afternoon. Um, and then I would leave the classroom and I would go and sit in an office that I shared with another pastor and I would work on Sunday school curriculum. That was my small life, what I thought was small. And here's the takeaway. First of all, I was disappointed. Have you ever been disappointed at reality? Like, here's what you were hoping for, praying for, expecting, maybe even thinking you deserved, and then here's what God gave you. Here's your actual life. Lackluster, small, 
unremarkable, disappointing, ordinary. Have you ever felt like that? Man, I have. I did then. I felt very small. Small life, small ministry, small opportunities, small service, small office, and a small paycheck too, I might add. (laughs) And my family was growing. And I was hearing all these glory stories about all the colleagues that I graduated with from this prestigious school. Man, they were going out and they were getting these big name ministries. Some even had their own assistants and secretaries and personal assistants and they were serving under these big name celebrity pastors and they had preaching ministries already counseling ministries some of them had their own parsonage and me i was refereeing dodgeball every morning in the grass with a splitting headache getting a sunburn and i had conferences with disgruntled parents wanting to know why their seventh grader was failing my class when I sent home notes and study guides, and you you guys get the idea, right? That was my life. I couldn't see how God, who had called me to seminary 3,000 miles away on the other side of the United States, away from everything familiar to our family, to live in a tiny, expensive apartment for nearly five years, I couldn't unravel the mystery of how he could equip me at the seminary to, like, charge the gates of hell and engage in ministry, and yet send me back to Florida as a PE coach and a logic teacher and a Sunday school curriculum developer and a newsletter editor. I was thinking, what the heck, God? Seriously? So I began to compare my small achievements and my small efforts to those of my seminary peers. And and guys, I want to be honest with you today. It produced something really ugly in my heart. You know what it produced? disappointment, and despising. That's what comparing yourself to others will always do. It will produce disappointment, and it will make you despise things. I began to despise the work that I was doing with those children, and at that school, and out on that playground, I began to despise that. And at the same time, we had our fourth child, so I'm right, we're right in the middle of potty training and changing diapers. We're exhausted all the time. We're broke. We're accumulating debt. I wanted to serve God and change the world, not do that, not do what I was doing. So I was miserable, and I started fighting feelings of resentment and bitterness. And then I heard a sermon one day from a guy you probably never heard of, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite British preachers. And he wasn't even preaching a message on the passage that I'm going to read in just a second. It was just a passing comment. Have you ever heard a sermon, and it was just a passing comment? Something maybe not even the notes that gripped you. That was the way it was for me. He quoted Zechariah 4.10, and it says this. It says, for who has despised the day of small things? He shall rejoice. Who has despised the day of small things? He shall rejoice. And that passing comment that he made gripped me and arrested my heart. And I began to really think more deeply and ask for God's help to see, like, Lord, where are you at right now in all of this? I wanted to change the world. I wanted big things for my life, for my family, and my ministry. Um, What's going on here? So what I want to do today, just in the short time we have, is just unleash some short, powerful truths from some passages. Now, i got to warn you, uh, we're going to be reading some passages. Maybe some of you maybe have never even read these. They're tucked away in some minor prophets, unless you like read through the Bible every year. This might not be framed on a Thomas Kincaid background background stenciled on your wall, okay? 
or, or on a T-shirt or something like that. But I, w- I would view it like this. Uh, if you're an ESPN fan, you know, there's like three different people sitting in a suit at a desk, and they're all telling you about the same game that they're watching, but they're doing it from different perspectives. You got like a guy over here, and he's analyzing the quarterback. This guy's analyzing the, uh, the path the wide receiver took, and you got this lady over here analyzing the play itself. So we're going to read from three different passages here. We're going to read from Ezra, from Haggai, and from Zechariah. But they're all talking about the same event that happened. And here's the event, just really quick here, just to help you be on the same page. God's people were coming out of exile. They had been in Babylonian captivity for years because of their sin. And one of the things you remember that the Babylonians did, they tore down the temple. When they invaded Jerusalem, they tore down the temple. Now, the temple was a Jew's identity. It's where they worshiped. It's where they gathered. It's where the, the they offered up their offerings to God. It's where God's glory came down, the Shekinah presence of God. So that was everything to them, and the Babylonians destroyed it. It was part of God's judgment on his people's disobedience and rebellion. So they're coming back. It's lackluster. There's 40,000 of them. They're coming back, and they're rebuilding this temple. And it was a really, really slow process. In fact, it took them 20 years to build this thing. They kept getting interrupted. There was conflict on the outside and threats and conflict on the inside. So the passages we're going to read is talking about when they finished the foundation. How many of you have ever had a new house built or watched a house being built and when the foundation is finished, that's cause for celebration. It's, a, it's an accomplishment. You've done something. Now you get to do the rest. You get to build the frame and the roof, the walls, and all that. So they just finished laying the foundation, and this is where the story picks up. And I've got some slides here. Hopefully we can get to them this time. So Ezra chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 10, and you can see the scripture up here. Here it is. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priest in their vestments came forward with trumpets and with cymbals, or excuse me, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But, here's where it gets interesting. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. And then we're going to pick up in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And this is God talking to the people. Same event, same, same uh, foundation being laid, and this is what God says through the prophet Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoahash, the high priest, Be strong, all of you people of the Lord, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And this is the last scripture I want to read on this. Again, same event. 
Then he said to me, and this is Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but my, my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And here goes, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And that's the passage I want to focus on. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So this work that is slow and painstaking, uh, rebuilding this temple, it's lackluster. It's disappointing. It's ordinary. It's unremarkable. There were people that were there who remembered 60 years earlier the temple of Solomon. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, you remember that was an amazing feat. It was glorious. It was overlaid with gold. It was something to behold, the temple of Solomon. They could remember it, and then it was torn down. They were exiled. They came back, and now they're rebuilding it, and the foundation is finished, and it's nothing. And they're crying. People that never saw the old temple, they're shouting. They're rejoicing. They're praising God, and they're singing. But the people who are comparing this temple to the previous temple, they are crying, and God engages them at their level of disappointment. And this is, uh, this is really the, the outline that I want to share here. There's two points today, okay? Point number one, God understands your sadness. God understands your sadness, your disappointment, your failed expectation. He gets that. Did you hear God in that first scripture I read? He said, who is there among you who remembers the former temple and all of its glory? Is it not nothing now in your eyes? Does it almost sound like God is mocking them? God goes, hey, hey, who's here who remembers the first temple? Raise your hands. And he goes, hey, this is nothing, is it? I mean, this is nothing. You remember the other temple? Oh, that was amazing, and this is nothing. God's not mocking them. You know what God is doing? God is drawing out their honesty. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to be honest. He wants you to be real. That's part of the culture of this church. Walk in the light as he is in the light so that we can have fellowship with one another. God wants you to be honest first and foremost with him. God says, who's here who remembers the earlier temple? It's nothing compared to, this temple's nothing compared to that, is it? God's drawing out their heart. God knows what they're feeling. He knows what they're experiencing. And that's exactly where God engages him. He can't engage you until you're honest with him and say, Lord, this is not the life I'd hoped for. Hey, let's be honest. For a lot of people, it's this year. It's like, Lord, seriously, 2020? <laughs> This is not the year. This is not where I'd hope to be right now. Waiting on a vaccine, wearing a mask, small business shut down, waiting on a stimulus check maybe. That's a lot of people for the year. It's almost as if they think God went away for 2020 and has no clue what's going on. Maybe one day he'll come back. But he certainly hasn't been here. There's, there's no possible way God could have been at work in any of this, right? <laughs> well, that's what the people were thinking. Where's God? That's what I was thinking. It's when I graduated seminary and came back. But God understood then, and he understands now. God gets us. Remember, he was a human. <laughs> God became a man. That's what the incarnation in Christmas is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. He knows that many of us battle resentment. He knows that we struggle, and we despise that the way, the way things are. God knows that we live with the regrets of what might have been. 
whatever it is, your family, your ministry, your job, your health, your relationships, your paycheck, the struggles that you still face every day, trying to deny the world, the devil, and your own flesh. You expect it to be here, spiritually mature, right here, and you're here. God understands that. And you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to celebrate the small beginnings, not to despise them, not to think that they're beneath you or beneath him. That's where God, he engaged them to draw out their honesty. I think many people, if they could reduce their life to a Facebook post or a tweet, maybe it wouldn't get liked, maybe it wouldn't get shared. (laughs) God understands, and that's why he encourages these people in this text. You can hear his love coming through. He says, don't be sad, don't be afraid, don't be inactive. I'm with you. I'm here in your midst. It's not by power. It's not by might, meaning your power and your might. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, whenever I was actually graduating from seminary, one of the things that added to my disappointment, there were all these books coming out. And look, I'm not, I'm not up here to shame any author, okay, at all. There were books coming out about being radical and about doing all these amazing things and like adopting 10 children from the sedan. And we need books like that because I'm not encouraging mediocrity or fruitlessness or faithlessness. But at the same time, we have to be really careful because that was a message that had like gripped all the Christian world and everyone's thinking, you know what, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to move over here. I'm going to go and do uh, missions. They thought maybe God is calling everybody to to aim at the same level of like radical. And then Michael Horton wrote a book kind of combating what he thought was, what he thought was uh, just a sweep in the wrong direction. And this is what he said. He, the book was called Ordinary, by the way. He said this. He said, for many of us, the worst word in our, in our vocabulary is ordinary. <clears throat> Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood My child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary. Who wants to be an ordinary person in an ordinary town, a member of an ordinary church with ordinary friends and ordinary callings? No, our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, a legacy, make a difference. And this has to be something that we can manage, measure, and maintain. He ends by saying we have to live up to our own Facebook profile. See, he's combating that stubborn voice that, listen, guys, when we talk about combating the world, the flesh, and the devil, do you know the world tells you you have to measure things uh, by how loud, how extravagant, how remarkable, how radical? That's the world's standard. God couldn't possibly be in it if it's not like this, as if God is not in the still, quiet, ordinary moments that we face every day, right? There was a woman named Tish Warren, and she, she wrote a provocative post a few years ago, and it was called Courage in the Ordinary. <clears throat> in her 20s, she was part of this radical Christian movement. It was world-changing, and it was calling everyone to live this radical world, uh, have this radical life-changing lifestyle. She did work in Africa. She organized protests in college. And she participated in various uh, radical Christian communities. Then she became a young mother. She struggled to fit her image of an authentic devotional life into her real life, and this is what she wrote. Check this out. 
She said, I've come to the point where I'm just not sure anymore what God counts as radical. I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. So that is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day. The bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. (laughs) I like that. You know what she's saying? She's saying basically everybody wants a revolution, nobody wants to do the dishes, (laughs) right? Is that how you feel sometimes? Your small, unremarkable, lackluster, ordinary life, ordinary calling, ordinary job, Maybe it's just going to escape everyone's notice. But what this text is telling us, what God is telling us, is it doesn't escape his notice. And that's point number two. Not only does God understand your sadness, God values our smallness. If you want to even call it that. I'm not a very good outline writer, okay? God values our smallness. And the words that he shares with those people, there's three. He actually gives them three commandments in that passage. One, he says, don't be afraid. Secondly, he says, get back to work. And the third thing he says is, uh, don't grow weary. Isn't that amazing? Don't be afraid. I'm, in, I'm with you. I'm here. Get to work. Don't be afraid. Don't be exhausted. Don't be weary. God understands our sadness, and he values our smallness. And there's a great power in that. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Stay at it. And then he promises you will rejoice. God's the one that makes, uh, basically, he, he's, his opinion is the one that matters the most, isn't it? And God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in what? Small things. Therefore, I will give you responsibility over big things. That's what the New Testament teaches. God is saying, I know that this looks small to you, but it represents something big to me. And you know what's interesting? Looking back, you know, at, at that time, I was an ordained pastor, so I would do chapel messages at the, at, the, at the academy whenever they would let me. Man, I would bring my best cutting edge, you know, the best stuff I had. I would preach, and nobody would say anything, and I'm looking back and thinking, is anybody hearing me? And years later, that was like 20, well, almost 20 years ago, I guess. <clears throat> maybe, maybe not quite that old, but it's funny, man. The students that have grown up now, you know what they tell me? They don't remember any of the sermons I preached. You know what they remember? Me refereeing dodgeball and telling them, hey, look, bro, you're out. Everybody knows that you're out. You know that you're out. I know that you're out. Everyone on the field knows that you're out. Nobody's going to remember who won this game today, but they're going to remember whether or not you had integrity, and that matters to God. They'll say, I've never forgotten that. I'm like, I don't even remember saying that. I'm like, "What what about the sermons in chapel? They're like, whose sermons? I'm like, me, I was a pastor. They're like, no, Coach Tommy, you, you were a coach. That's what they remember. They remember a passing conversation on the sidelines or a joke that I told in class or how I worked hard to make logic class applicable to all of life and see the glory and the design and the infinite variety of their creator and things like numbers and statistics. That's what they remember. That's the impact that I made on them, not my sermons. Do you guys know that? God values what we think is small because if God's in it, it's, it's not small. <laughs> if God's in it, it's big. 
That's what God was teaching me all those many years ago. The things that I sometimes despise are the very moments that God uses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this. This is really interesting. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church, and he said this. He said, we urge you, brothers, to love more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. I like the way the NIV translates that verse. It says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. I like that. How many bumper stickers you see that tell you to do that? Hey, aspire to live a quiet life. It glorifies God and it pleases him. Now, look, I'm not, again, I'm not calling anybody to mediocrity here, and I'm not saying live a, a cold, fruitless life, but sometimes aspiring to live an ordinary and a fruitful life, that's the most pleasing thing to God. You don't have to have this uh, take the hill, warrior, charge. Some people may be called to that, but not everybody is. Not everybody can go to the mission field. Some, some people have to hold the rope to help you make your payments when you're over there, right, and support you. Thank God for all those people. God calls all of us to do something in different ways. Our, our faithful lives gives God glory. In Romans chapter 14, at the very end of his letter, the Apostle Paul is closing out, and he's sending greetings to people that helped shape his ministry and helped him take the gospel all the way to Asia and to Rome. And it's it's like a lackluster list of people. There's no apostles in there or church planners in there or pastors in there. It's just ordinary people. I've read that list several times, and it's encouraged me. It's like if God had a refrigerator with pictures with magnets on the back, these are the people that would be on his refrigerator. Those are the people that excite God. And it's easy to miss that when you get so caught up in world-changing radical ideas as a Christian, right? God values the small, seemingly insignificant things that are so often despised by the world. Great things in God's kingdoms have small beginnings, like a small boy's lunch that he's willing to share, right? Or a mustard seed. Remember that parable that Jesus taught? Smallest seed, man, grows up and becomes this great shade and shelter for animals. The widow's might. And then there's the incarnation. <laughs> See, this is really about Christmas. Do you know one of the greatest and most miraculous, extraordinary feats that ever happened was quiet and happened in this obscure little village tucked away in a corner of the world? And God hid it. It's like God hid the most significant event that ever happened and showed it to like a few shepherds. They got to see the angelic choir. Shepherds, bottom of the rung on the social economic ladder. Think about it. God took on human flesh, the greatest event in the history, and it almost passed unnoticed. Remember the wise men came and they're asking, they're asking these scholars, they're like, hey, do you know, uh, you know where the house is, where the Messiah is born? They're like, what? Yeah, yeah, third house on the left down there. They didn't even bother going. Most people missed it. And I think if we're not careful, and this is like an encouragement for 2021, if we're not careful, we're so busy looking for something radical and crazy and extraordinary and remarkable, we're going to miss what God is doing right in front of us, in our homes, in our careers, in our families, playing dodgeball in the dew, right? Having a conversation, a conference with a parent, 
and telling her, hey, look, your kid is pulling one over on you. They're actually lazy, and God wants you to address it. That's important too. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. It says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you do matters to God. 2 Timothy chapter 1 talks about Eunice and Lois. Anybody know who those women are? Eunice and Lois. Timothy, Paul's protege, that was his mother and his grandmother. And the Apostle Paul is praising the remarkable investment in Timothy. I was asking my wife, I said, honey, do you, what are, what are some, some things that often go unnoticed that people, are, that people do? And she said, teachers, mothers. I mean, she went on all this list. And it's like, seriously, when I was in seminary, those are things, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even tell you this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, they're doing that because, you know, they have to do that so we can, can do the real work. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you that. You know, most of the conversions that happen in the book of Acts don't happen on Sunday. They happen in the middle of the week through the efforts of ordinary people that are just serving the Lord in their everyday life. Listen, I want to tell you something. You have access to people I'll never see, I'll never speak to, I'll never rub shoulders with. There's an extraordinary work of God waiting to happen through you. And I think of this church, honestly. Do you know 80% of churches in America, the, attend the attendance is below 200? Did you know that? That's not what you see, <laughs> right? Maybe some of them don't have killer websites and a social media presence and their own channel, but make no mistake, they are doing God's work. This church is doing God's work. And we want we aspire to do it faithfully, maybe quietly sometimes. It may seem unremarkable to people, but not to God. I go to uh, conferences every year, and it's sometimes it's sad because the same. It sounds like I'm complaining. I promise I'm not. It's just interesting to me. It's if you had a conference and you had this. Let me put it this way: if there was a big church planning conference and I was the keynote speaker, nobody would come. <laughs> You know why? Because nobody knows me, man. Nobody knows. I'm just like, I'm tucked in this little corner over in Deltona High School doing God's work. And, and I'm happy doing that. That's the way I want it. And God's happy with that. But I just think like, the whole world sometimes, the way they think it infiltrates the church. Got to go, like, go big or go home. And God says, don't despise the day of small things. And friends, I would, I would apply this in your life. Maybe you got these grandiose uh, resolutions that you want to have this year, and you're waiting for those to happen just like you were waiting for those to happen last year. Celebrate small steps, small beginnings that, that God's at work at in your life. Some of you want to read the whole Bible this year. That's great. Find a, you can find a great plan for that. But I also want to tell you, celebrate when you can spend five minutes a day reading your Bible. That's a victory. That's something worthy to celebrate. If you're just waiting, like, whenever I finally read through the whole Bible, I'm going to have a party. Won't you have a party when you, you spend your first five minutes, just turn off your phone, you know, turn off the TV, get alone in a room. You spend five minutes with God and you respond in prayer. That's a victory. Celebrate that. Or whatever sin you're, you're trying to say no to, you're waiting until you completely conquer that when very often it's going to be God gives you steps and you can celebrate small victories. 
Larry Kirk heads up a network that I joined when we planted this church. And early on, he, he shared some truth when, from 1 Kings chapter 19. Do you remember that? Elijah, he's looking for God, and he's looking for God in the earthquake and the firestorm, and God's not there. And then he, he hears a still, small voice. This is what Larry Kirk said. He said, in America, if something dramatic happens among Christians, some people say, God really showed up. Have you ever heard that? God really showed up as if he's absent when he isn't dramatic, as if he never works quietly in the hearts of people. Elijah felt that his whole nation needed a spiritual earthquake, a windstorm of God's power, and a baptism of fire. When God didn't work like that, Elijah, though he wasn't working at all, Elijah thought that he, he wasn't working at all. So Elijah lost faith and joy. Sometimes a lot of whispering is better than one big windstorm. And I agree with that. I think so often we despise what God is putting right in front of us. Mother Teresa said this. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. She also said this. We can do no great things, only small things with great love. Man, that's a great theme to to enter 2021 <laughs> with, right? We can do no great. You're, you're expecting to do some radical and great thing for God. Maybe God's going to let you do small things for him with great love. There's times, man, I wish I could go back and, and really enjoy that time I had as a PE teacher and laugh with those kids instead of, instead of daydreaming about the ministry that I wanted to have. I remember whenever we showed up at seminary, everyone was able to give, like, hey, what, do you, what is it you hope to do when you leave here? And I remember there was one guy, man, he spoke Arabic, he spoke, he spoke like 10 languages, and he said, I hope to bring uh, the work of Satan in the Middle East to a screeching halt. And I was like, man, dang, that guy's ambitious. And he went back, and that's exactly what he was doing. So I had that in my mind when I'm back teaching PE, you know. I'm like, I'm here to bring the work of Satan to a screeching halt, playing dodgeball. Kids that say they're out. <laughs> but you know what? God's at work in all of that. Little is big when God's in it. And I want to say this too, going big all the time, it's, it's not only a recipe for burnout, it's just not the way God usually works in your life. Invest in stamina. Cultivate endurance. Recognize the miraculous world of the ordinary little things that God so often puts in front of us. And don't compare your life to somebody else's life. <laughs> That's a recipe for jealousy and contempt or pride if you're looking down on others. Trust God to make himself great in our smallness. And the last thing I want to share in closing here is, uh, you know what's interesting? God is telling them, I know that some of you are despising this, but you're going to rejoice. I don't know if you're like me, but that struck me. God is, he's drawing this confession out of them. He's saying, you despise this, don't you? And they're, and they're weeping. They're like, yeah, we despise this. This is not what we wanted. And God says, but nevertheless, you're going to rejoice. How can God, how can God make a radical promise like that to sinners? He says, you're despising this, I'm, I'm in this, so you're basically despising me, but nevertheless, you're going to rejoice. How can God do that? Because there's something else that we despise. You know that? We actually despise God, <laughs> the Bible says. Let me read you a passage from Isaiah. Check this out. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, for those of us thinking we're going to do something radical and and make God actually like us and love us, God already did the most radical thing that he could possibly do. He sent his son Jesus into the world to become a human being and to live a perfect life that he demands of us that we're unable and unwilling to live and to die a, a, a horrible death on our behalf. That's the most radical thing that could ever be done. You can't match that. <laughs> Jesus already did the saving. We're poor saviors, guys. You know that? So uh, that's a good way to start out 2021 to say, Lord, help me to see you at work in the small, ordinary, unremarkable things that go unnoticed by the world, but that you're in the details. You're in the midst. He says that. Don't be afraid. Don't despise this. You will rejoice. I am in your midst working with you. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder. I know this is a different kind of sermon, Lord, and, and uh, maybe this sermon even has a flavor of ordinary and unremarkable, but Lord, this is a powerful truth, and even though it comes from an imperfect man, a flawed person like me, I pray that it would, uh, you, would give it, you would energize it, Lord, make it come alive in our hearts. I know we're going to face this year, and there's going to be disappointments, and there's going to be expectations that aren't met. And we're going to find ourselves, Lord, in, in situations and maybe in careers and what, whatever it is, Lord, ministries that, that were not what we hoped for. And help us to not despise them, Lord. Help us to see you there, present, at work, and squeezing out glory for yourself, Lord, from our small, unremarkable efforts. Thank you that even though we despise you, Lord, you love us. You died for us. You gave yourself for us. That's the most radical thing that could ever be. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.